In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a hand-picked collection of this week's stories for you to digest each Monday. I'm Lane Green, author of the Johnson column on language, and on your menu, why Europe should embrace ties with Africa, the wildlife photographer who built an assault course for badgers, and an impressive display of bonhomie on the Korean peninsula. But first, Latin America's latest menace was our cover line this week. Brazilians head to the polls next month to elect a new president. It's a chance to rejuvenate a troubled, once promising country. But a confluence of factors mean that the right-wing firebrand Jair Bolsonaro could end up in the top spot. It would be a disastrous choice, as our cover leader explained. The economy is a disaster. The public finances are under strain and politics are thoroughly rotten. Street crime is rising too. Seven Brazilian cities feature in the world's 20 most violent. Mr Bolsonaro, whose middle name is Messias, or Messiah, promises salvation. In fact, he is a menace to Brazil and to Latin America. Mr Bolsonaro has exploited voters' grievances, in part by being grossly offensive. He said he would not rape a congresswoman because she was very ugly. He said he would prefer a dead son to a gay one. And he suggested that people who live in settlements founded by escaped slaves are fat and lazy. Suddenly, that willingness to break taboos is being taken as evidence that he is different from the political hacks in the capital city, Brasilia. But voters should be wary of his authoritarian views, we explained. In addition to his illiberal social views, Mr Bolsonaro has a worrying admiration for dictatorship. Mr Bolsonaro's running mate is Hamilton Morau, a retired general, who last year, while in uniform, mused that the army might intervene to solve Brazil's problems. Mr Bolsonaro's answer to crime is, in effect, to kill more criminals, though in 2016 police killed over 4,000 people. Healing a wounded democracy requires time and patience, not populism. Some progress has been made, such as a ban on corporate donations to parties and a freeze on federal spending. A lot more reform is needed. Mr Bolsonaro is not the man to provide it. You can read more about Brazil's election in this week's edition of The Economist. It's available online and at all good newsstands. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can get your first 12 issues for $12 by visiting economist.com slash radio offer. Asia was witness to yet another parade of smiles last week as the leaders of North and South Korea came together again to express goodwill and solidarity. The two certainly put on a good performance, but will it be enough to get America back to the negotiating table? The setting keeps changing. The pictures, not so much. Kim Jong-un, North Korea's dictator, welcomed Moon Jae-in, the South's president, to Pyongyang Airport on September 18th for their third summit since April. Smiles and embraces were aplenty. Some were reserved for the North Korean children who presented Mr Moon and his wife with bouquets and military salutes. Later, the two leaders went on a jaunt in an open-topped limo through Pyongyang. The streets were lined with women in brightly coloured traditional dresses who waved yet more bouquets and sent up cheers of unification. This bonhomie toppled onto television screens too. On the second day of the three-day summit, the two leaders unveiled a joint statement at a press conference broadcast live on North Korean state television, as well as channels from the South. It was as upbeat as Mr Moon's reception, 
He and Mr. Kim blithely pledged to turn the Korean peninsula into a land of peace without nuclear weapons or nuclear threats. Inter-Korean ties were certainly strengthened by the agreement, but the bold steps Mr. Moon was hoping for from Mr. Kim were absent. He made no mention of an inventory of his nuclear arsenal or a timeline to dismantle it. As it stands, the agreement is unlikely to persuade America to ease sanctions or sign a peace treaty, even though Mr. Trump pronounced it very exciting in a tweet. These potentially unifying sentiments were echoed elsewhere in this week's issue. Our Charlemagne columnist, writing in the pages of our Europe section, explained why the continent should stop thinking of the Mediterranean as a barrier between it and Africa and start building bridges instead, figuratively at least. It is a peculiarly modern habit to think of the Mediterranean Sea as a boundary. For over two millennia, civilizations bled across it and intermingled. Roman, Carthaginian, Moorish and Venetian empires expanded primarily along maritime routes. Yet Europeans have increasingly turned towards Asia and its booming markets. Tellingly, the geopolitical buzzword of the moment is Eurasia. Europe and Asia are integrating along old Silk Road routes, especially under China's Belt and Road infrastructure splurge. Yet Eurafrica remains relatively little discussed. Europe is too busy rushing into Asia's arms to embrace a continent on its doorstep, which may be even more significant in the long term. Current waves of African migration to Europe are likely to grow. Of the 2.2 billion citizens added to the global population by 2050, 1.3 billion will be Africans, about the size of China's population today. And more of them will have the means to travel. Europe's strategy, it seems, is to set itself up as a fortress. EU leaders met in Salzburg on September 19th and 20th to discuss new border controls and North African disembarkation platforms, where migrants from the south could be processed and sent back. But there is an alternative, to accept the integration of Africa and Europe and make it a success. Alex Dual, an African expert at Tufts University, agrees that is the only realistic course. The logic of history is a European Mediterranean market that will cross the Sahara too, he says. The challenge is to recognise that reality and make it a mutually beneficial and regulated one. Building walls will not work. Walls of sorts are being raised between America and China. The two countries are in the midst of a tit-for-tat trade war, which threatens to embroil the entire global trading system. On our Money Talks podcast this week, economics editor Henry Kerr explained what lies behind the escalating tiff. What the a report on which these tariffs were based objected to was things like Chinese forced transfer of intellectual property as a condition of, of market access for American firms in China and uh, subsidies to state-owned firms. And a lot, lots of people, everyone uh, in, in the West basically, more or less, agrees uh, that these are uh, undesirable tactics on the part of China. But it's not the case that China is going to disrupt its whole economic model uh, in order to get these tariffs taken off. It's not clear what incremental reforms would satisfy Donald Trump. And on other days, uh, he talks a lot about things like the trade deficit. Earlier in the year, 
there was a sense that there might be uh, a deal based on China uh, volunteering to buy more exports from the US. It's all a bit of a mess. It's unclear what America really wants and how it how it proposes to use that leverage that it probably has created by imposing these tariffs. On Babbage, our science and technology show, we took a look at the rise of e-cigarettes. Evidence is building that they're healthier than their tobacco-filled cousins. But as healthcare correspondent Natasha Loder explained, that doesn't necessarily mean they're good for you. So uh, cigarettes are just so bad for you that practically doing anything else, maybe even hitting your head against a wall repeatedly, (laughs) would be better for you. So in relative terms, that's kind of how people view these things is smoking cigarettes is bad, you know, do anything else. The kind of dilemma comes from the fact that actually there are other methods for quitting smoking that probably are less harmful than e-cigarettes. We head to Cuba for our penultimate taste of this week's coverage. Decades of communism may have done little good for the tropical island nation, but it's done wonders for the local flora and fauna. Bees are thriving, and the honey business is booming. Our Cuba correspondent, Roseanne Lake, explained more in our Current Affairs podcast, The Week Ahead. Cuba has a lot less developed agriculture than than many other places in the world. It's forbidden to use antibiotics, and economic limitations mean that few pesticides are used, which means that there's a lot of wild territory in Cuba. In other places, you know, we like to mow our lawns and we like to keep things tidy in ways that maybe look nice to us, but are not very good for bees. Cuban ones don't have that problem. This week's obituary paid respects to someone who probably would have appreciated the bee's success, Johnny Kingdom, a wildlife photographer, poacher, and grave digger, a man who constantly strove to get closer to nature. Truth to say, he was watching wildlife long before a friend put an 8mm video camera into his hand and encouraged him to use it. After a tree-felling accident in 1971 that nearly did for him, and left his mind in pieces for some time. His homemade nature films brought him fame all over Britain. But he remained the man he always had been, whose chief enjoyment, once he was past the girl-chasing, motorbike-crashing, cider-soaking years, was to stay in one place and watch. And all the while, he gradually sneaked closer to the wildlife he was watching. Even the feathers in his hat, buzzards and pheasants, served a purpose to lose him in the heather. He once got three feet away from an adder in the brambles, which yawned its pink mouth fit to swallow him. Several hides were built, most of them on his very own 52-acre woodland patch of Exmoor. One was made from a fallen-down pylon, 29 feet high. From this, he filmed badgers running along an assault course he had built for them. He had another job, like his grandfather and father before him, digging graves. It got to him sometimes... He had buried friends and his parents, but he learned to look death square in the eye. Under the church tower at Bishop's Nympton in 2006, where the ground was always hard, he had dug a last grave, his own, filling in with soft earth to make a nice, easy job. And that's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. Remember, you can read these stories and more online at economist.com. I'm Lane Green. In London... This is The Economist.